Again, good morning. It is really good to be back with you. I was gone the last couple of Sundays sailing the Aegean Sea, tracing the work of the Apostle Paul, uh, which was an outstanding trip. Many, many in our church uh, were able to uh, attend that, really a -a once-in-a-lifetime type of journey. Uh, Mark sends his greetings, he and Cheryl. I can say this, Mark was as relaxed as I have ever seen him. Uh, When I showed up, he actually had a beard, if you can believe that. He quickly shaved it. I think he just wanted to show it to Sam. But, uh, man, it was, it was good to see them and, and a good time uh, seeing those significant biblical sites. A little boy returned home from his first day of the new school year. His mother asked him, how's your new teacher? She's mean but fair, the boy said. I don't understand, questioned his confused mother. The, the boy then quickly clarified, well, she's mean to everyone. She's mean to everyone. She's mean but fair. One elementary school teacher found it hard to maintain a straight face when a little boy told her, Miss Hayes, I I don't want to scare you, but my mom and dad said if my grades don't improve, somebody's going to get a spanking. (laughs) Seems to be the way it goes with teachers these days. Just a couple of teacher stories as we enter into a time uh, in the book of Titus where we're going to be talking a great deal about teaching, false teaching specifically. But do, do you have that teacher that comes to mind when you think of your worst teacher? You know, the one that you still just shudder thinking about. Sometimes a bad teacher is the teacher who is really disorganized or the teacher who really doesn't know the material very well. But, but oftentimes, what makes a teacher bad, really bad is when they just don't care about their students. They don't care if their students succeed or grow, or really if anyone learns anything at all, they are just there drawing a paycheck. Well, that somewhat describes the bad teachers who controlled the churches on the island of Crete. One, they didn't have an essential grasp of the material. That means they didn't understand the gospel. And then two, they they didn't really care about the people they were teaching because at the end of the day, they were just in it for the money. And as we talked about in our study a few weeks ago, this is chiefly why Paul has sent Titus to the island of Crete so that he may set things in order. And to be able to set things in order, Titus is going to have to deal with the false teachers that are there. And to deal with the false teachers, he first needs to establish elders in every place there is a church. So that command in chapter 1, verse 5, that is the heart of Paul's instruction to Titus. Set things in order. How do you set things in order? By establishing elders. Titus is not planning to remain on the island of Crete. Even if he was, he wouldn't be able to provide hands-on leadership in every church. Therefore, every church needs elders, capable, called, qualified leaders who fit the description that Paul has provided there in verses 5 through 9. And these men and the authority they get from Titus, who got his authority from Paul, who got his authority from Jesus Christ, these elders can then shepherd and lead the local churches on Crete. Now, we don't know how many churches were on the island of Crete. In the first century, Homer, in his classic work, The Iliad, said there were about a hundred cities on Crete during this time frame. But we can't accurately say that there was a church in every one of those 100 cities. We can safely say, however, there were many churches, and that is because the word many shows up here in verse 10. There were many false teachers. 
likely enough false teachers to have infiltrated all of the churches. So if you're not in Titus chapter 1, go ahead and turn there now. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 16 together. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word. Thanks be to him for it. Now, as Paul is writing these words to Titus, he is longing for the Christians on Crete to adorn the gospel of grace with how they live their lives. He wants them rooted in the gospel and ready for good works. Rooted and ready. R&R, as we've been titling it this summer. And in a nutshell, he wants the churches to, to show, to demonstrate, to evidence the power of God at work in them by the gospel. That's at the core of this letter. And as I said, he's called on elders to be appointed in these churches precisely so they can aid in seeing that come to pass. And for the elders to get the job done, they're going to first have to address the false teachers. So in this text, Paul gives the elders some information so they can feel a sense of urgency for this task. Just look at your outline there in front of you. He gives them first a profile of the false teachers, telling them just how twisted these people really are. Then he tells them the product of the false teacher, basically what their heresy has accomplished in Crete. Then he gives a directive. He, he gives power to Titus to silence these wicked men. And then he closes the group of verses with a bit of a proverb that, that serves as a litmus. We'll call it the proof of saving faith. And this is the only place in Titus where, where the problem on Crete is really described in any sort of detail. So let's, gonna, let's get into it together. But I should warn you, today, my exposition of this text, it's not going to be as orderly as usual. I won't unpack verse 10 and then move to verse 11 and then to 12. I'm going to jump around a bit in these seven verses. So just be ready for that. If you're a, a linear thinker, beware. We're not going to be moving in a straight line today. But the profile of the false teachers first. Paul's description of these teachers, like I said, we know that there are many which accords with the prophecy of Jesus. Jesus said to the disciples, many false teachers will come in my name. So this has come true. And since there are many, we can infer that their influence is fairly widespread. And Paul describes them. They are teachers who are insubordinate, which means they don't submit to authority. They are rebellious men. They look at God's word. They look at the testimonies of the apostles in the church, men like Paul, and they do not submit to that teaching. They are insubordinate. 
They have, they have a way of being spiritual. The problem is it doesn't align with the gospel. It doesn't align with the teaching of the apostles. So Paul, from the outset, he identifies these false teachers as people who do not submit to the authority of the word or the apostles' preaching of the word. And to this day, that is the standard characteristic of a false teacher. A false teacher will always come up with some extra biblical thing that is necessary to live the Christian life. They say, I have the key, I have the trick, I have the answer. And you say, I don't care what you say, show me in the word. That's what I submit to, it's God's word. What do you submit to? And they say nothing to that because they are insubordinate. They always appeal to something beyond the word, something that they've devised. They are a law unto themselves in many ways. He also describes them as empty talkers. That's a rich term in the Greek. We, we get it as two words in English, empty talkers, but it means those who peddle big words but say nothing. Big words, big talk, very little substance. Babblers, one translation says. There, there's nothing clear about their teaching. They may have an impressive vocabulary, perhaps they can turn a phrase, but their teaching is, is vapid. It's the kind of teaching that you always walk away from confused. One thing that I think pastors owe their congregations is clarity. And that's because many teachers and thinkers, they can nuance language and they can make their positions seem really well thought out and very intelligent, but they're often unclear. And I think people want to know clearly how to think about theology and sexuality and ethics and faith. And, and for a pastor to sound intelligent but be unclear, that's just bad shepherding. And so these guys on Crete, they were cruddy shepherds. They babbled, they talked big, but they really said nothing. He also says they were deceivers. So they weren't just wrong or unclear, they were deceivers. That meant they, they intentionally led people astray, they misled people. Later in the passage, Paul writes that they are people who turn away from the truth. In, in verse 16, he describes them as detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Like a stone that doesn't fit right in a building, it would be marked and set aside because it was unfit for the work that needed to be done. And so I'm not sure Paul could have a worse opinion of these teachers. These are, these are bad men. And to that you might be like, well, well how bad could they be? They're, they're just teachers. What exactly are they teaching? Well, the text gives us some clues as to what they are teaching. At the end of verse 10, it says they are of the circumcision party. That's one clue. Then in verse 14, there's the mention of being devoted to Jewish myths. And so what we gather from these clues is, is that these false teachers are primarily Jews who would agree that Jesus Christ is Messiah, but they refuse to let go of their Jewish traditions, and they still make them absolutely necessary for saving faith. The, these teachers are something like the Judaizers that we read about in, in other places in the New Testament. Jews who would have professed faith in Christ, but they would have attempted to join Christianity with some peculiar view of the Old Testament and some form of Jewish legalism that would bind people to the law. Take circumcision, for instance. It was decided by the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 that the Gentiles did not have to receive circumcision to be in the church. 
So an authoritative decision was made. It's not Christ plus circumcision. It is just Christ. Well, the Judaizers, they refused to listen to that decision. In Acts chapter 10, Peter gets a vision that all foods are clean, meaning the Jewish dietary laws, they are are obsolete for saving faith. Well, the Judaizers didn't believe that was true either. If you know anything about the book of Galatians, then you know something of the Judaizers. They they were following Paul around. They They would come in behind him and they would distort his teaching. They would say, we know Paul taught that it was faith in Christ alone which saves you. But really, we have the whole story. He he started the work. We really have the rest of it for you. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus these rules. It's Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus observing the feast days and the Sabbath days. And so that's why in Galatians 1, Paul lays it down hard on the Galatian churches. He pulls no punches. He says in Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word for accursed is anathema. The meaning is damned. He's saying these false teachers, they should be damned. That's the category that their heresy belongs in. Later on in the book of Galatians, Paul says that he wishes these false teachers would would castrate themselves. He's mocking their call for mandatory circumcision. He's taking it to sort of the extreme there. Which, before we move on to the next point, I should remind you about Titus. Titus, again, was a a Greek. Titus was a Gentile believer in Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul uses him as an example. Paul says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so this is why Titus was such a perfect fit for this assignment on Crete. He was the the, the right-hand man of Paul. He was Paul's troubleshooter. Paul left him to deal with the churches in one of the worst Greek societies in the ancient world. But since Titus himself was a Greek, he would feel at home in that context. And since he was uncircumcised, he would be able to discredit the Judaizers in the churches. I think this is one of those neat reminders regarding the way God provides the right leaders for the right ministry tasks. If God is leading, he will provide the leaders, which should make us thankful for the elders that that were installed today. Let's move to the second point. We've seen who these teachers are. What is the result then of their teaching? What's the product of false teachers? Most obviously, it says in verse 11, their teaching was upsetting whole families. And that pretty much tells you all you need to to know. False teaching, it upsets people. It causes turmoil and strife. It confuses people. This is why the work of false teachers is ultimately the work of the devil. You may not realize this, but, but Satan would rather work in the church than outside the church. He would rather people be deceived under the guise of Christianity than establish a church of Satan on every corner. To upset the church and false teaching is the enemy's primarily, primary goal, which explains why there has always been false teaching in the church. 
In the first century, there was false teaching in the church. This is clear because the majority of the New Testament is addressing the need for sound doctrine. There wouldn't be a need for sound doctrine if there wasn't so much unsound doctrine infiltrating the churches. A study of church history is largely a study of heresy battles, particularly the first four centuries. And even today, false teaching remains. Just, just turn on your television. Not all religious teachers on TV are false teachers, but many of them are. Many of them fit Paul's description perfectly. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers, teachers who can impress with their words, but they really say nothing of value or of substance. They just babble and carry on. What marks out the TV preachers most distinctly is what we see here in verse 11. They teach for shameful gain. That's the other result of their teaching. They not only upset whole families, which might mean family units, it might mean household churches, I'm not sure exactly which. They not only upset these families, but they also get rich by deceiving the people. There's nothing wrong now with, 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 a, with a preacher or a teacher making money in ministry. Paul says a good elder is worthy of double honor. But to get rich by deceiving people, this is the mark of a false teacher. Again, these types of teachers exist in spades in our day. These teachers will try anything to get naive people to give to their ministry. They'll, prom they'll, they'll promise all sorts of things, blessings and, and favor with God and power and wealth and healing. But it's all bogus. It's all deception. It's all for shameful gain to buy a new jet or another vacation home or another plastic surgery or whichever one we're thinking about right now. C.S. Lewis once commented, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And he's exactly right. The great English theologian John Stott, he laid out three tests for, for false teaching. Three tests. He asked, is its origin divine or human? Divine or human? So is it revelation or tradition? Second question, is, it, is its essence inward or outward? So is it spiritual or just ritual? And then third, is its result a transformed life or merely a formal creed? So with those three questions, with those tests in mind, true faith is divine in origin, spiritual in essence, and moral in its effect. Those are three good test questions. And you know... I wish I didn't have to preach a sermon on false teachers. But it's absolutely necessary, isn't it? False teachers existed in the first century. They existed throughout the centuries as we move to today, and they exist today. They exist on television, and they infiltrate local churches. And some of you might think, well, we, we don't have to worry about that here. It's never going to happen in our church. Yeah, be careful there. Don't be naive. The more committed to sound doctrine we are, the more gospel-centered we become here at Faith Bible Church, the more people that are trusting in Jesus Christ, then the more Satan is going to try to attack us with false teaching, with silly little myths that lead people astray. But as an elder in your church, alongside these elders who stood before you today, we will commit to obeying the words of Paul in verse 11 which is the next point in your notes. The power delegated to Titus, and therefore the elders that he was appointing. Paul exhorts Titus, they must be 
silenced. Notice, Paul does not believe freedom of speech applies to the local church. Only truth is to be taught here, and if not, then you are to be silenced. And you've got to remember, the first century was as pluralistic in its thinking as the 21st century. All sorts of worldviews swirled around, all sorts of crazy teaching showed up in the church, and Paul says, shut it down. The churches in Crete need to be in good order, and they wouldn't get there without sound teaching. And the only way to get sound teaching was to get rid of the bad teaching. And so Paul lays out the game plan for this in the passage that we studied a few weeks ago. Verse 9, the elders are to exhort in sound doctrine, and they are to refute those who contradict it. And so this is why the elders are to be men who hold fast to the word, Their commitment to the word has to trump their commitment to popularity and cultural conformity and approval and financial gain and whatever else. And that commitment will will result in men who propagate sound doctrine in their churches. They, like Paul charged Timothy, they guard the deposit. They watch their doctrine and life closely. And therefore they refute, refute those who contradict it. They don't defend the truth brazenly or condescendingly. No, no. This is done with humility and conviction and great care. In verse 13, there is a similar command to silence them. Paul says to rebuke them sharply. This word sharply means there must be a firm and decided response to false teaching. You don't sort of slow play it to see how it might turn out. No, you act. Yet at the same time, they aren't to just throw the bad teachers out of the church. That would be the expectation, wouldn't it? It's not. Paul has a patient and gracious approach. In verse 13, he puts restoration in view for these men. He writes, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul says the elders aren't only to get them to stop teaching, they are to see that they hold ultimately to sound doctrine. The stern nature of the elder's response has a corrective and a redemptive purpose, which is saving saving faith in the lives of these teachers and in those who, who follow them. The word sound here is rooted in the word for, for health or hygiene, that they may be healthy in the faith. So rebuking false teachers and, and their followers is like treating them for an illness. They have an infection, and to correct them is an attempt to restore them to health. Now, that's a very different motive than just pointing out that that you are right and they are wrong. It's bigger than just winning an argument. We want them to be healthy. We want that infection, that disease of false teaching to to be expunged from their lives. There is a point, however where these false teachers are to be excommunicated. Paul lays it out in chapter 3 of of this book. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So three strikes and you're out if you're a false teacher. Paul delegates his power to Titus and, and also to the elders that Titus would go on to appoint. Order in the church, spiritual vitality and health in these household churches that are, that are existing on Crete, it, de- it depends on the centrality of sound doctrine, which depends on the condition of their teachers. 
So a question. Are we this concerned about doctrine? Do you have an insatiable appetite, an insatiable hunger for sound theology? Do you love the truth and want to see it taught here? Some say, I don't know, man. Theology is just not very practical. You've heard that, right? Well, understand this. All theology is practical, and all practice is theological. The way you live your life, you're living out from what you believe. What you believe about God, what you believe about man, what you believe about saving faith in Jesus Christ. Everything you do, you may not see it on the surface, is touched by your theology. Your theology is intensely practical. They had an orthodoxy problem on Crete. Orthodoxy is a, is a compound word that just means right teaching or right doctrine. And if you have orthodoxy, what that leads to ultimately is orthopraxy. And that is a word that just means right living. And that's the last point in your notes, the proof of saving faith. Verse 12, Paul quotes a, a Greek philosopher named Epimenides. He's not named here. The text doesn't name him. But he was a very well-known, very revered Cretan philosopher. And Epimenides wrote this at the end of the 7th century B.C. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So think about this. Paul wrote this letter intending it for, for it to be read and distributed amongst the churches of Crete. And so can you imagine me standing up before you and reading a letter that says, Oklahomans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That's what Paul has just done for Crete. And he did it because the people of Crete had one of the worst reputations of the ancient world. And it was a reputation verified by one of their own prophets. So for them to run away from that reputation would be to run away from one of the prophets that they revered greatly. So what does it mean they were always liars? Well, the Greek word kretizen means to lie. It means if someone told you that you speak like a Cretan... It meant you were trying to deceive them. This goes back to a legend that they propagated, those on Crete propagated about Zeus. Zeus was the most powerful god in the Greek pantheon. They said that he was born on Crete, and not only that, they claimed that his tomb was also on Crete. The thing is, nobody else in the ancient world believed that to be true. But the Cretans, they maintained it. They were liars. They had this inflated significance and they lied to maintain that significance. They're sort of like people from Texas, right? <laughs> they were evil beasts. The island of Crete was known to have no wild beasts. They had no dangerous predators. So one philosopher said that's because their people were like wild beasts. And then they were lazy gluttons. The, the King James Version says slow bellies, which is a great term, isn't it? That's what I feel like after eating Mexican food, a slow belly. And it just means they were unproductive. They, they were pleasure seekers with little self-control. A writer named Polybius said, The Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. It doesn't matter how they obtain wealth. It doesn't matter. It's, it, nothing's disgraceful. They didn't care how they went about their lives. They, they just wanted to get to a place where they could lay around and do nothing. 
So Paul points to this long-held description of the Cretan people. And his point in doing so is twofold. First, is to say these false teachers among you, they have no countercultural characteristics. They are just like all the other Cretans. They are nothing like the elders that are described in verses 5 through 9. No transformation has happened in their life. Nothing about their manner of life is worth emulating. So that's his first point in referencing this quote. The second is to underscore the Cretan need for the gospel. Only the gospel can move you from death to life. Only the gospel can take you from being a person who lives a lie to a person who walks in the truth. Only the gospel can replace evil deeds with good works. No other philosophy can do that. No other message has gospel power. Which is why he closes his thought with verse 16. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. The way to know if a teacher in the church is genuine is if his life proves it. The way to know if any believer has saving faith is if their lives prove it to be true. This is why James said in the book that bears his name, faith without works is dead. It's not that works save you or give you eternal life, not at all. Only Jesus Christ does that. But saving faith is accompanied by good works. Think about it. You can't see faith, can you? No, it's invisible. You can't see it. it it's like calories, right? I consumed a lot of calories on this cruise we had last week. I, evidently, that's, supposed to, that's what you're supposed to do on a cruise, I was told. I never actually saw them. But, but the scale at home proves that I consumed them. You can't see calories, but you can tell if someone has been eating too many of them. It's like that with faith. You can't actually see faith, but you can see if a person has it by the works that are displayed in their life. The presence of saving faith is best proven by a life of good works. Not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but a life filled with good works that bring glory to God and that are fueled by His grace. As I conclude, I just want to bring a bit of attention to verse 15. Verse 15 is sort of parenthetical in nature. And it's actually a verse that's been misused quite a bit. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. And this does not mean that whoever becomes a Christian can engage in whatever behaviors or practices they want to engage in because to the pure, all things are pure. You don't justify unwise or sinful choices with Scripture. That's a bad move. This is Paul's take on what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. You might remember, if you've been a part of our Wednesday night study, that, that, that Mark, or our study has been of Mark, and in that chapter, Mark chapter 7, Jesus told the Pharisees that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Why is that? Because man is already defiled. Man's heart is already wicked and defiled, so no amount of staying away from defiled things, food or other unclean things, None of that can make really anybody clean. No amount of ceremonial cleansing can make the heart pure. Purity is not found in circumcision. It's not found in your diet. It's not found in ceremonial washings. What's required to be pure is Jesus Christ. When, when Christ died on the cross, his blood cleansed believers from all their unrighteousness. It's a doctrine we call expiation. He made, he made believers pure, washing them by the power of his shed blood. 
Therefore, only those who look totally to Christ are pure, and therefore their actions will be characteristically pure. They don't achieve purity. We don't achieve purity, folks. We are given purity by the blood of Jesus. To those who don't believe Christ's work had a full and cleansing effect, they remain defiled. They are fundamentally unbelieving, therefore they are in the category of unclean, and no amount of ceremonial observance is going to make them clean. Only looking to Christ and Christ alone will cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And so if you come in here today and you have a very clear understanding that you need to be cleansed, that you are in your sin, defiled, not right before God because of the filth in your life, there's only one thing you can do about it. And it's not con you know, continuing to come to church so you can rack up some sort of merit. It's looking to Jesus Christ throwing yourself at his feet and upon his mercy and asking to be cleansed from your sins. And if you do that, he will do that. I love William Cooper. We sang his, one of his songs this morning. He was a Puritan hymn writer. He was a man that was actually institutionalized for some time. He suffered from severe depression and melancholy, but he wrote these words that just, I think, just resonate in my heart and mind, even as we sang them this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose what? All their guilty stains. No doctrine truer than that. None more precious either. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for the legacy of sound teaching in this church. Lord, we pray for protection upon this church family, that, that silly myths and, and genealogies and, and whatever other categories exist today for false teaching, that they would not make their way in here, that you would empower the elders of our church to silence that kind of teaching. And God, that you would build up this church. You would make us orderly and beautiful as we look to the truth, as we look to Jesus Christ, the only thing, the only one who makes us pure. God, we thank you for the fact that, that we lose all our guilty stains when we cling to Christ and Christ alone. Give us a heart to do that and to lead others toward that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.